1: See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
2: Welcome to the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. This time of year, which we associate with cold climbs and dark skies, may be a good time to see something most Americans only hear about but never see live the Aurora Borealis, Northern Lights. But where can we go to see them? Is one year better than any other year? And what are the chances we go way north, we have a very cold vacation, and we see absolutely nothing at all? And maybe most importantly, what are those lights anyway? Robert Steinberg is a scientist with the NOAA Space Weather Prediction Center. Good to have you with us. And let me start with actually your title. What is space weather?
0: Okay. Um, well, space weather consists primarily of events that occur on the sun and impact us and our technologies here on earth Um, and so there's a wide variety of phenomena and impacts uh, all wrapped up in the term space weather
2: got it okay and that will actually bring us to something that may be more uh, important in many ways than the beauty of the northern lights this solar storms and what they can do on earth but we'll we'll get to that in a little bit so let's get to the northern lights what are they and i know that's probably much easier to ask than to answer
0: you can you can definitely go down a rabbit hole when you uh, answer a question like that in its simplest sense the uh, northern lights or the aurora borealis and and its counterpart in the southern hemisphere the uh, aurora australis um, is the only real visible manifestation of space weather that we have on Earth. Uh, Most of your listeners probably go about their affairs uh, day to day and never even realize there's such a thing as space weather. Uh, I did as well um, until I got into this field. But the aurora uh, results from the injection of energetic particles, electrons, into our atmosphere during geomagnetic storming. And those electrons, those tiny particles, interact with the constituents of our atmosphere, our upper atmosphere, and produce lights.
2: Which is a great and beautiful thing. When we talk about these storms, so we're talking about storms on the sun that are ejecting material that that heads toward the earth. Uh, well, probably heads toward everywhere, but happens, you know, we're in its path as well.
0: That's exactly right. Um, the sun produces... Uh, an event called a coronal mass ejection uh, where you have plasma ejected from the sun, from the sun's corona, hence the name, and uh, it travels through interplanetary space. And, and as you noted, it can go anywhere in space. It doesn't have to come to Earth, but occasionally it does come to Earth. And when it does, it carries its own magnetic field, and that interacts with Earth's magnetic field, and that interaction then produces the geomagnetic storming.
2: And I take it part of the problem of predicting to people, hey, you can see the aurora borealis at this time, at this place, get over there, is that a coronal mass ejection is going to hit the Earth's magnetosphere at about a million miles an hour. And at that speed, even given that the sun's, what, 93 million miles away, at that speed, uh, by the time you can predict where they'll go and they actually get here, I'm still online trying to make (laughs) my reservations.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, the timing is is important. Uh, there's a lot of different factors that come into play when you can when or if you'll be able to see the northern lights. Um, those include things like cloud cover, uh, moon illumination, how far away from a city you are, what time of day it is when the storm arrives, uh, and all those variables uh, add up to make it you know more difficult than uh, than you'd first think. Um, the ejections themselves can get here in a matter of days, up to three days or more, uh, to as little as around 17 hours. So, uh, yeah, there's a there's a wide range of speeds. Uh, for the slower ones, we can give you a little more lead time. Uh, for the faster ones, it's more difficult.
2: We see these coronal mass ejections when they leave the sun, and we see them again, you know, 93 million miles later when they get here. But where they are and where they're going in between is just a mystery.
0: At this point, yes, we can observe uh, with spacecraft we have uh, the eruption itself. Uh, Unfortunately, as that eruption moves further away from the sun, we can't see it anymore. And as a result, uh, yeah, it's out there propagating in space. So we try and capture the characteristics of it as it's leaving the sun and the uh, the solar atmosphere. And put that into numerical models, which allow us then to uh, try and pinpoint the arrival time, but during the transit, uh, yeah, we don't really have an ability to track it until it's about a million miles away from Earth. Um, then we have uh, a spacecraft out there, a couple actually, uh, that serve kind of as a buoy out in the ocean of space, um, and as it passes that buoy, uh, we get our first glimpse of what the magnetic field looks like, for instance.
2: True story have friends, always wanted to see the Northern Lights, went to this little village in northern Norway where they were told they had their best chance, they were going to be there a week. It's not like there was anything else to do other than talk to other tourists who had come to see the Northern Lights. And they saw nothing. Meanwhile, again, true story, their grown son walked out of a McDonald's in Fairbanks, Alaska, was in the parking lot, looked up, and ta-da! (laughs) Ta-da!
0: Yep, yep. That sounds uh, that sounds about right. Um, I had a similar experience where I where I tracked all the way up into the Yukon territory uh, on a trip and uh, to see the aurora, and was actually in an aircraft. Um, unfortunately, uh, I couldn't see it other than kind of this murky haze, but it wasn't what you you know what you see in those vivid photographs one thing i can I can mention though is uh depending on the type of camera you have um, and there are websites that'll tell you more about what you need but uh you can use cameras that will actually capture the aurora when the human eye can 't see it um, and that 's what happened on that flight actually uh some of the people I was with had cameras that were able you know they took pictures of the murky uh, area that I saw. And uh, when, you know, when they uh, looked at the images that were captured, uh, they were much more vivid. So that's something else to keep in mind, you know, if you're if you're looking for this stuff to, uh, if you have good camera equipment, and I don't think it has to be, you know, over the top kind of stuff. Um, you can capture it that way. The other thing I'll mention is I was a meteorologist for 20 years, and I've been stationed in places like uh, Illinois and Ohio and uh, Texas. Um, always thought I'd see a tornado. Never, never saw a tornado. It wasn't until after I retired and was no longer a meteorologist uh, day to day that I finally saw a tornado. So it happens. It happens to all of us.
2: (laughs) But the thing with the camera fascinates me because when um, I was at the North Pole, there were people... And in Greenland on on that trip, it was a, a training trip, how to survive on a crashed C-130 ski bird. And you, you had to live out on the ice. And one of the people who was going up with me said, uh, you think we'll see the Northern Lights? And my answer was, no, dummy. It's going to be light 24 hours a day when we're there. <laughs> it's just The sun's just kind of going to go around in a circle. But no. And now I'm thinking, if I had been lucky enough to have you know that good a camera or, or something maybe i would have seen something that was going on that i couldn't see but the camera might have
0: yeah if it's if it's daylight i'm thinking that the whatever detector might be just overwhelmed by the background uh light from the sun so in that case yeah i don't i don't know that uh that would have worked but i don't have enough experience with it my in my situation, it was it, it was night. You know, it, we had a lot of darkness and, and that's what we took advantage of.
2: You know what? It it went from matter to anyhow, because because uh, I brought with me some uh, chemical packs and uh, they were supposed to keep the camera warm. And, you know, you surrounded the camera with it so you could take pictures. And after one day, since, you know, one day's just like the next day, like the next day up there, after one day, I took those chemical packs out of my camera pack and let the camera mechanism freeze up and put them in my boots. So oh, wow. it went to bed. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Robert Steinberg is a scientist with NOAA Space Weather Prediction Center. And Robert, thank you. And if I do get to see the Northern Lights on some trip, I'll be thinking of you and thanking you.
0: All right. Well, uh, I wish you the best of luck with that. And if you ever find yourself in uh, our neck of the woods here in Boulder, Colorado, uh, let me know. And uh, we have uh, public tours of the Space Weather Prediction Center and this uh, whole facility.
2: Oh, I would love to. I am talking to you from not far below you in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So that's, that's an actual possibility. Every year at this time, there's a demand for people to play Santa Claus, people who will embrace the values of a mysterious, good-hearted soul who gives out presents and kept a list of who's naughty and who's nice before anybody could accuse one of his elves of being a hacker or listening in on a house through Siri or Alexa. Dan Short takes on the role of Santa, and he's been doing that for 30 years and has also studied up so he can do justice to the man. The result, well, it's interesting. He's keeping the whole thing of Santa alive at a time when so many malls and department stores have disappeared that the Christmas tradition of a kid meeting Santa Claus is kind of imperiled. Dan, good to have you with us. What what got you into playing Santa?
1: Thank you, Gil. I got invited. I was shopping with my wife at our largest mall here. You know, I was accommodating. I went for about an hour and then I wanted to just not shop anymore. So I sat down, and it was Christmas season, and I sat up on the second level and watched this amazing Santa. Pay attention to children so intently, I could not believe it. It was like there was nobody else in the world except Santa and that child, and I began to want to be just like that. I wanted to be Santa, and I never had thought about it before, but I went back for hours at a time for five seasons. And one, finally, in the fifth season, he got up. I never bothered him before, but he got up and turned toward me because I was down on his level for the first time, watching the children's faces, and he came toward me, and I was like a kid, Santa's coming toward me. Oh, my gosh, Santa, I love watching you work. We shook hands, and he said, Have you ever thought about being Santa? And I said, I would love to. Literally, it had been in my heart for five years. And that day, he gave me his number and said, After Mrs. Claus and I take a cruise, a couple weeks later, I'll call you and we'll arrange for an audition. And then I flew about two months later for an audition in Las Vegas, of all places. 60 other Santas in the Naturally Santa organization met literally to review 14 of us who were, in effect, being invited to be considered. A couple weeks after that, my wife and I got the call that they wanted us to be a Santa, and then I went through training.
2: So it was an invitation that I will always cherish. I think most of us don't even think about Santa Claus training, but of course, it makes sense to make sure you're getting the right kind of people. And also, you know, some people can do this for an hour or two at a party, an office function, something like that, a school event, but doing it eight hours or more a day at a store or a mall or wherever, that, that's a commitment. Yes, it is. Uh, my very first season, I was assigned
1: to the biggest mall in Iowa, in Iowa City, Coral Ridge Mall. And uh, I was a little bit nervous because I didn't want to ruin some child's life with my incompetence, but uh, it went very well. But at the end of that season, that Christmas Eve, I fell into bed in the motel and I couldn't move the next morning. I literally woke up Christmas morning exhausted to to beyond movement. And uh, fortunately, my wife had driven Up to pick me up, and she drove all the way back to Oklahoma. Uh, It was very tiring, and then I learned over the years to pace myself.
2: Yeah, because it's not like you can let your attention waver. You you can't have a kid tell you about everything he or she wants in the world and go, huh, huh. Oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. I mean, that's just not that's not a doable thing for Santa. Exactly. No, exactly. You you are
1: absolutely listening and looking and feeling every single minute you encounter that child. And that's what I saw uh, from a
2: distance in the Santa that uh, inspired me. You've written a book about this, The Santa Claus Chronicles, heartwarming tales from a real-life Santa. So I want to get into some of what you talk about in there, because besides a lot of the stories, which we'll get into in in a moment, it's fascinating to look at this because... Being Santa isn't just going, you know, ho, 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 and what do you want, and get off my lap next. It's about what we value, and what we value in this experience really isn't the toys. That's very, very true. You know, that word value is is the
1: crux of how we approach, how I approach this. I have learned over these years, and I continue to learn, How connected the values of the birth of Jesus, the value of Jesus himself as an adult that he has taught us and left us to uh, practice ourselves, the values of kindness and generosity and loving not just your neighbor, but everyone, including the people who are difficult to love. And during the seasons over these years, I've met thousands and thousands of children and thousands of parents. And I have the opportunity to convey through my Santa persona, through this opportunity, I have the opportunity to convey these values to children. So what kind of values
2: are we talking about here?
1: Well, one of them that I try to do from the very first moment I see a child and I make eye contact with them, I open my arms and I open my hands in a gesture to come to me. And I say, come over, give me five. And they get engaged at that moment. And then I move towards affirming them first. I compliment every single child on something. On their smile, on their face, on their their hairdo, on their on their clothing, on whatever it is, and and that starts the conversation with a smile. So it's affirming the children. It's the first value, which I think is my whole role. the The other values that emerge then are encouraging kindness, encouraging gratitude, encouraging love. Uh, and appreciation and respect for their parents and for their brothers and sisters. Uh, We we engage in a sort of a personal conversation. It's not about the toys yet. It's about them.
2: And then we move beyond that. So one of the things that Santa is classically used for in the cartoon world is 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 making sure that, that kids stay in line, you know, kids behave. You know, they won't listen to me the other 11 months of the year, but sometime after Thanksgiving, when Santa kind of pops up at the store, or at least in kids' minds and things, uh, I've got a chance to control my kid by saying, hey, if you're naughty, uh, Santa's not going to get you anything. And there's a classic coal in the stocking thing and, and all of that. But I know that you think naughty list shaming is not a good thing. I really agree with that. Uh, I've been on I've been on
1: a mission for years to teach children that they don't have to stay on the naughty list more than one minute after they've done something that they know is naughty. And what I tell them is, nobody's perfect, not even Santa. I have a bad day once in a while, and if I hurt somebody's feelings or if I if I do something that I know is just not right here's what I have to do. I have to say, I'm sorry. I'll try not to do it again. Please forgive me. And if I tell that to my parents, they will forget about it right away. And so will Santa. And immediately I tell them, you only have to stay on the, nice, the naughty list for one minute. And you say those things sincerely and I have you off the naughty list immediately. I do not like children to walk around nervous and anxious and, and feeling guilty. It's not a good, healthy
2: thing. So let's explore some of these stories that you've had in your life as Santa, that you have in this book, The Santa Claus Chronicles. And I don't know, what's what's the what's the sweetest story? What's what's the story that this time of year is gonna make us all go, aw. You know, there are some poignant ones where
1: you get a message from a child when you say to them, what would you like for Christmas? And they come back instead of toys, say, I want my daddy back home, or I want my mother to come back, or I miss my dad, or I miss my mom. Many, many children, parent or parents were overseas And, uh, I took a lot of pictures then with the photo of the, uh, the uniformed officer that was missing in that family with
2: the child and me, uh, holding that picture. let's go to the other extreme. (laughs) How many little Bart Simpsons do you run into? (laughs) Just (laughs) get in your lap and wise off to you for a moment. Well, listen,
1: you know, even yesterday, even yesterday, I had a, a little guy I mean, he couldn't give me a straight answer about anything. He was making jokes, cracking jokes. He was being sarcastic. And uh, and finally, I said, you know, I think you may have a future in comedy. And he, and he looked at me and he grabbed my arms and he said, that's what I want to be. <laughs> so once in a while, I have some insight that is not uh, that, that is totally from some other place that gives me an opportunity
2: to to respond. There's a story about Anna, which, you know, is a real tearjerker. Yeah,
1: that, that uh, little girl was beautiful. I got a call on a, on a Friday night, and it was a week before I was supposed to start here in Oklahoma. Um, I got a call from uh, Rosanna, who was the assistant manager there and the set manager. And Rosanna said, we had a mom Call just a bit ago, it was about nine o'clock at night, uh, just a bit ago to ask if they could bring their daughter and their two other children to see Santa in a special moment because Anna had been suffering and struggling with cancer all of her five years. All of her five years. She had had a couple of surgeries and she had had various other treatments. She was a beautiful little girl. Um, when, uh, when we set up the set the next morning, the next day, uh, especially for her and her family, uh, they visited and Anna was dressed in this beautiful little red plaid dress with a white lace collar. And she had patent leather shoes and little white frilly socks on. And she had a little bald head. She had never met Santa before. Anna was so sweet. I, I greeted her. She was just so, so gentle and so loving. And she put her head on my shoulder, and said, "I love you, Santa." And I said, "I love you, Anna." And a couple of weeks later, just before Christmas, Anna went to heaven. Um, and then a bit later, uh, her mother contacted me to say that just before she passed, uh, she uh, had had a conversation with Anna, and Anna said, Mom, that was the best day of my life when I met Santa. What's it going to be like when I go to heaven? And her mom said, Anna, when you're in heaven, you're going to be sitting on Jesus' lap just like you were on Santa's lap. That, that is that is the kind of gift that is the kind of power that I
2: am privileged to witness uh, over and over that is so very special uh one one final story that we have time for I, I could listen to these just you know the whole day but uh there was Rose the the elderly woman who just had a grudge against Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one.
1: Uh, we took a cruise uh, after the holiday and uh, so we slept in late one morning and got to the to the dining area and there were only a couple of folks left. I heard this this kind of voice say, "Santa, I've got a bone to pick with you." <laughs> I said, "Are you talking to me?" She said, "When I was a little girl, Three years in a row, I asked for a Shirley Temple doll, and you never brought it. I said, oh, hon. I said, I am so sorry. I said, I think I remember that. I said, wasn't that during the Depression? Yes, times were tough. I said, well, there was such a shortage of everything. I could not find a Shirley Temple doll for you, and I'm so sorry. I apologize. Well, I asked her if I, if she would mind if I dropped her a line uh, after the cruise, and she gave me her address. I searched for a Shirley Temple doll online and found one. I ordered it, and it was delivered to me, and then I saved it until about Thanksgiving, and then I mailed it to her in Chicago. I didn't put a return address. I just put a note inside saying, I know you've wanted this doll for a long, long time, and you've been a good girl. So I want you to have this gift. Merry
2: Christmas. Santa loves you. That (laughs) is the loveliest gesture and the loveliest story. It leaves me with only one last thing to ask you, Dan. If I asked for an official Red Ryder carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle, what would you say? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. See, that's what I was afraid of. <laughs> Dan, Dan Short's book is The Santa Claus Chronicles, Heartwarming Tales from a Real-Life Santa. Dan, what a what a lovely thing to give so much time in your life to. Uh, thank you on behalf of uh, all, all the little kids and grown-ups like rose who now still have some hope that their dreams may be fulfilled dan short thank you so much for being with us thank you gil merry christmas and santa loves you too keep being a good boy okay i'll try but i may have to call you back next year and ask again how to get off that naughty list (laughs) (laughs) merry christmas merry christmas Food not only gives us life, it unites people with their cultures, their peoples, of course, their families. And for Hispanic cultures, tamiladas bring generations together. Chef Jorge Guzman knows about that. He is chef and owner at Petit Leon in Minneapolis, has James Beard nominations for Best Chef. And his restaurants have been recognized by the New York Times as some of the best in America. Good to have you with us. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, tamilada is... Essentially, a tamale making party, right? That's exactly what it is. And it's what families do when they get together for
3: Christmas. How, do, how does this work? I mean, so the process of making tamales is pretty labor intensive. And you're never going to eat just one tamale. You're never going to make just one tamale. So when you make tamales, you want to make a ton of them. So the best thing to do is gather your friends, gather your family, and make as many tamales as you can and then give them away and then keep some for yourself. Um, I think. It's kind of a two-day process because you don't want to start your tamales the day of. You want to make your your fillings or your guisados the day before, basically your braises. You know, you can do like chicken and chile verde or beef and chile rojo or birria or anything like that that can be stuffed into the, the masa filling. The day of is when you want to actually make your dough, your tamale dough. Um, and then you basically gather your friends and your family and you just start an assembly line and you start making tamales.
2: Yeah, it is something like an assembly line. Everybody kind of gets, you know, the task, the part of making the tamale that um, they're either most expert at or they just, you know, want to do without starting a fight. And uh, it just and it just goes from there. It's, it's lovely because it gets everybody in the kitchen or extended into another room if you need the room. And, you know, working together and talking at the same time they're doing all this.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's also a great idea, you know, if... If you want to throw a holiday party and you're out of ideas, just have a tamalada, you know, and and have at it. Have your closest friends over, crack some bubbles and some wine, and see see what happens, and see how many you can make.
2: What's really nice about this is, you know, a lot of times in the holidays, what happens is the family kind of breaks up. Uh, according to uh, age or uh, political affiliation or whatever. Or, you know, somebody wants to watch a football game and five people go off in a room, you never see them again. But this this really gets everybody together and talking and enjoying one another's company. And for that alone, it's a lovely thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. So what can go wrong in constructing a tamale, whether we're talking about doing it at a party or, you know, we're just trying to make them at home what, because, you know, a, a lot of people listening just, oh yeah, I, I, I like them. I order them at a restaurant or a stand and and that's great. But in the actual making of it, yeah. before we get to what can go right, what can go wrong?
3: So if you've never made tamales, they, they can be pretty intimidating. You know, it's, there's a lot of questions on like, how do I make the dough? How do I fill it? How do I wrap it? You know, everyone's got their technique. Um, I think let's start with the filling. You want to make sure that you've got a filling that has enough sauce to it. Because if it doesn't, you know, it could end up being super dry. So make a braise, make sure there's enough sauce. Let the, you know, shred your meat uh, and let it cool in that sauce overnight. So it gets really flavorful. And then, you know, hopefully you've got enough that you can have a little extra sauce that you can put into the filling as you're making the individual tamale. The next thing is your your dough. You want to have really good quality um, uh, maseca. And I'm going to plug masienda. You know, they're good friends of mine and they're a company that sources heirloom corn out of Oaxaca and they, they have masa maseca that you can buy online and get it shipped directly to your, to your door. And it makes a, a heck of a difference when you're making tamales that, that real flavor of corn. Um, the store-bought stuff is just fine. Um, but if you can get the really great stuff, you know, go ahead and splurge for that. And then lard, um, you really want, you know, you can use vegetable shortening, but if you can get your hands on some really great leaf lard and lard, um, that's really going to make your tamale super soft. It's going to make it very flavorful. It's really going to give you that kind of authentic taste of what a tamale is. Um, and you know, make sure you've got enough baking powder, and not enough, not so much that it affects the flavor, but you want the tamale dough to actually rise. And then when you're filling it, don't overfill it. You only need a, like a probably like a tablespoon of filling, and it's going to feel like that's not enough. You know, you can really fill them if you want, but it's not. You want more corn than you want filling. And then when you wrap them, you know, depending on whether you're doing banana or corn husk, you know, the banana leaf you have to treat. So you have to take it out of the wrapper. Usually they come frozen, thaw them out overnight and then clean them really well. And then you want to kind of soften them over a flame to make them pliable. And that helps fold the the banana leaf so it doesn't rip on you. And if you're doing corn husks, you want to make sure to soak them in hot water so they're pliable. And then you're the, I find the banana leaf easier to fold because you're really just kind of folding it like a, like a, you know, four folds over, over, under, under, and then you just, you're done. The corn husk one, I think can be intimidating for people because it's this V shaped husk. And it's like, well, how do I do this? Some people fold both sides up and then fold them over. Some people do one side and fold the other side over. Um, I would suggest the best way to learn if you've never done it. It's just go on YouTube and watch some authentic videos of people making tamales. Watch a few different ways and do what's most comfortable for you. And then make sure you're not putting your, your your masa to the very top of the corn husk because when you do steam it, it's going to expand. And if it's too if it's too filled to the top, it's gonna it's gonna kind of like puff up over your corn husk and it'll just make a mess inside your steamer.
2: All right, so. Uh, Although avoiding making a mess isn't, isn't something that you have to make 100% when you're assembling tamales. No, absolutely not. Yeah, because that, that can also be part of the fun. And the fillings, you mentioned some of them. I mean, one of the classics is a pork and red chili sauce, but they, they can really be
3: anything. They can be whatever you want. And it doesn't have to be Mexican. Um, I love doing mushrooms and cheese. Uh, beans is another great one. Um, it's, it's, you can be creative as you want
2: you're talking about the family part of this is this something that that you did during your childhood and if so what what memories do you have of this
3: you know i hate
2: to say no because
3: it's just the truth but we didn't we you know we didn't have the tradition of making them we had the tradition of buying them and eating them
1: so <laughs>
3: <laughs> so our our family would just buy them from people that did make them and then we would just come home with a bag full I, anytime i would go back to mexico it's one of the meals that i would always remember having as a kid it's like it was either tortas or tamales at my grandparents house when we would come back you know we would visit them every summer from the states and it was that was hands down it was either one of those two two meals when we would get off the plane
2: now you grew up in the Yucatan, right i did yeah Okay. Now th- there's, because people in the United States talk about, you know, Mexican food, just like, you know, Mexican food. yeah 90% of them sadly talk about it as like what the menu is at the Taco Bell. But for people who have access to real Mexican cuisine, that's great, but they still think of it as it's all the same in that very, very big country. I mean, Mexico City alone is bigger than you know most places and all of that, and you can find a wider variance of cuisines there than you can in some countries. That all said, the Yucatan has its own cuisine. It does. Um, you know, I like to say that there's a common vein that runs through
3: all of Mexico. You know, there's the chilies, the beans, the corns. You know, that is prevalent in most of the cooking in Mexican cuisine. But the Yucatan is special because it it, it really differs from the rest of Mexico in this in the in the sense that it, it does have its own cuisine and a lot of that has been influenced by outsiders and as well as the Mayan population. So um, Spanish, Lebanese, African, Caribbean, um, and then now Mexican cuisine. The thing is people couldn't get to the Yucatan because how dense the jungles were. So people from Mexico, unless you traveled by boat, you couldn't get there. So a lot of the outside influence came from the coasts.
2: Chef Jorge Guzman has Petite Leon in Minneapolis. We mentioned your other restaurant. I mentioned Ohio without mentioning, you know, where in the restaurant. Do you want to do a brief mention?
3: Yeah, Sueño's in Dayton, Ohio. It's a 100% authentic Mexican restaurant. We do everything from scratch, even or nixomalizing our own corn to make our tortillas and the whole nine yards. It's a great place.
2: Sounds great. Jorge right, Guzman, thank you so much and happy holidays to you. Thanks you too. Counting sheep is a way some people put themselves to sleep, or so I'm told. I've never actually met anybody who counts sheep other than shepherds and wolves. Counting birds is something I'm told many people do, but not as a sleep aid. And to find out why, we put in a bird call, so to speak, to Jeff LeBaron, the director of the Christmas Bird Count for the National Audubon Society, a position he's held since 1987. Uh, Jeff... Good to speak to you. Happy holidays.
4: Happy holidays. It's great to be here.
2: Well, it is an easy first question. I guess this occurs in Christmas and it involves counting birds, but what exactly is this?
4: Well, the Christmas bird count is what we call an early winter bird census. Uh, each count is done in a 15-mile diameter circle by several groups of people. Um, all the counts are done between the inclusive period of December 14th and January 5th each season. Um, it's it's a wonderful way of getting outside for just about anybody, or for, you can also watch your feeders if you live within a count circle, um, and it's become an incredibly popular and important thing for uh, Audubon and also for researchers across the Americas to understand what's happening with with bird populations in their ranges. What is
2: it we're looking for? Changes because of. Uh climate change the fires in the west just you know general changes
4: sort of all of the above um, certainly one of the things that Audubon is, and other groups are very interested in are the effects of of climate change on what's going what has happened and what is likely to be happening with birds and the beauty of the Christmas bird count we not only collect the it's not just looking at species of birds but we count actual numbers of every bird and we also include the effort that are that's expended for during during the you know the course of the day So we, you know, because theoretically, if you have more people out there, you're going to count more birds, whether or not there actually are more. Over the last almost century and a quarter, um, we can actually track how the birds have moved their, shifted their ranges in a response to a warming early winter climate.
2: Now to take part in this, because this is something that the general public can take part in. It do you have to be able to tell one bird from another? My wife is very good at this, and I'm very bad. I, I do know blue jays are blue, but but when we get past that, it's kind of rocky.
4: Yeah. Well, you don't. Any given person doesn't have to be a bird expert, or even. I mean, we we love having new birders on on not only on the Christmas bird count, but also, you know, in general in birding, because, you know, we need to bring new people into the fold, um, you never you 'll never a beginning birder will never be by themselves in the field. Um, most of the counts are done for the group of people where you have a party leader who knows the area and the birds, and then the rest of the field observers go along and you know are, are telling things. I can tell you from personal experience that we as we as sort of experience that we fancy ourselves to be experienced birders we think we know where the birds are going to be, so we tend to go from A to B to C. Looking for the birds in those locations, whereas a new birder, they're they're like sponges. They're just absorbing everything and looking at everything. And you don't have to know what something is to be the first one to see it. So it's very important. You know, it, it's it's exciting to have new birders on board. New birders of any age and also any ability, uh, to to sort of bring the new blood into the into the CBC.
2: A lovely thing to do over the holidays. Jeff LeBaron is director of the Christmas Bird Count for the National Audubon Society. Give us the website where we can go if we want to take part in this and you can sign up and also just find out more about what's expected and all of that.
4: It's Christmas Bird Count. Um, That will take you right to the website.
2: Jeff, thank you so much. You're welcome. You're listening to The Holiday Special from CBS News Radio.